Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's binary episode of the Day Zero Podcast. I'm Spectre with me as Z. Today we have some bugs in curl, a pretty insane heap overflow exploit with a custom TCP stack, and the Masticore follow-up with a uh, PS2 emulator escape. And we'll get into all of that after Z gets into this week's Spot the Vuln, and I'll let him take that away. And this week's Spot the Vuln is in something that you should never do and see, which is string uh, parsing or processing. Honestly, just just don't do it. There's so many ways this can go wrong. Like that is very much like the first issue here is the fact they're even doing this in C. Uh, that said, the way the code ends up working here, um, it effectively starts off trying to parse out the username part of the email. So first band tell the at, you know, finds you know wherever the ad is, tosses in a null byte, reads a link, make sure it's good before copying in that first part of the email. Uh, then it looks at the remaining size after the at sign for the domain. Um, and gain does the size check, making sure it's going to fit into the domain structure. Um, and copies that in. And the problem is, if you do not include a dot in the domain, it's going to go ahead and have a default domain that it'll load in there for you and just copy in. Um, you know, so if you were to give an email without domain, it's just inserting like whatever the default like local network domain is, something like that uh, is the ID here. So it has that default domain that's going to toss on, and it does that without doing any bounce check. So core issue here does bounce check everywhere except for uh, that last one. Doesn't do the bounce check, so it could in theory overflow if you provided a domain that would just fit inside there. Followed by the default domain. If if you don't provide, sorry, if you give it a domain that does not have a dot within it, so it falls into this default case, it'll go ahead and toss the default domain on there without checking bounds and potentially overflowing. All right, so uh, we'll get into our topics. So up first, we have uh, the curl audit that was done by Trail of Bits. Um, and this was a bit of a, a fun post. There was a bit of a joke aspect to it, as the headline implies. Um, so, you know, one of the team members at Trail of Bits was, was joking like, hey, let's pass, has anyone tried curl and then, you know, a string of A's, uh, your classic CTF payload. Uh, but that got them thinking like, oh, what if we actually try to fuzz the uh, curl command line interface? So, you know, that's what they, they started tunneling in on. They started researching into that and they actually did find some vulnerabilities. Um, and it's also a bit interesting because while they're fuzzing argv here, which you would think would be you know, the most straightforward method of input. Um, AFL doesn't actually support it officially outside of, you know, an experimental sample. Um, so, you know, they had to figure that out and try to get a good harness working for the argv fuzzing. Um, they also made a dictionary by using uh, like AFL Clang L2's auto dictionary tool against the curl build and also built a custom dictionary based on the man pages. But yeah, um, they did manage to get some findings. Unfortunately, they don't go super deep on them. Uh, they most of them, most of the things they found were used after freeze or double free. Um, so yeah, like the first double free they found, uh, they yeah they found this one when they were using curl to proxy to a uh, dict uh, gopher LDAP or telnet protocol. Um, that triggered a double free, presumably similar to other cases we talked about, where you know some path freeze the buffer, doesn't clear the reference, and then something else at a higher level sees that error and freeze it again. Um, yeah, with all but, of these, we don't really get much information on how the vulnerabilities were caused. Just, here's a crash, yeah. here's what happened, and, you know, the rebros. 
Yeah, pretty much all of them, though. Um, it's hinted at that it's it's happening in the like error case, like edge case handling, which makes sense. Um, for example, like another one was the UAF when trying to tunnel through an HTTP proxy, and if that proxy blocks um, SMB or Telnet protocols, you can you can trigger the the vulnerability. Uh, and then another one with the parallel option uh, by passing an unmatched bracket and passing two sequences that create fifty one hosts. Um, you know, on that second sequence, when it hits an error to the unmatched bracket, it'll it'll go to write that error into the buffer that was just freed when handling the first sequence. So, yeah, it's kind of some low hanging fruit bugs in the error handling. Um, it's not super surprising to to see these kinds of bugs, especially uh, in these weird edge cases that you think might not be easy to reach from command line. Um, and to be fair, like the pox here are like they're not super intuitive. Like root causing these bugs, you'd you'd have to go and it wouldn't be like easy to spot the bugs probably. Um, but yeah, like the more interesting aspect is the argv fuzzing. Uh, I, I can't recall us ever covering a topic that really delved into that. Um, Cause no, it's it, just it, not a common interface to, to have access to as an attacker, I guess. But well, yeah, it makes sense uh, to a degree. Um, so you were talking earlier about how like AFL does kind of experimentally supports it. Um, and part of that is, like, the way AFL works is it provides you the argv. Like, that's how it's sending you its input. Um, so, kind of just by its design, it doesn't really work with then you needing to pass the input off. Um, so, it kind of makes sense on why there's a little bit of working then. Also, if you're fuzzing, like, libraries or whatever, oftentimes you're more focused on what are my entry points into this library? What functions am I just going to call on that? And that's kind of easier to structure, to give arguments to, um, to directly pass like a nice structure that's whatever, just to do that and making the call, like you might do with like a libfuzzer set up, uh, you set up the structure based off whatever input it's passing. Um, but I, I thought this was an interesting post just in, on that sense of, Doing the argument fuzzing, I don't think I've ever really needed to do this. Um, but it's good to keep in mind because it is generally going to be a really good entry point to a lot of different functionality when it's available. Um, you know, something like libcurl and curl, a lot of entry points are like curl is going to be able to exercise most of libcurl. Um, so it kind of leaves you with that, with good access there. A lot of libraries don't have a binary that gives like a really nice interface so not always going to be an option but in this case where it is i think it makes a lot of sense to target or to go through this because that one entry point as long as you can craft the right string going into it and that is kind of a bigger difference there is you're not going to be able to do as much uh when it comes to passing certain types of pointers or something like that you can't really do that over a string you're going to be somewhat limited in terms of your input to that degree, but, you know, it is going to be able to exercise a lot of functionality. Uh, you'll expect that. It, it Your should influence be is going to be pretty limited, too, uh, which is especially notable with these kinds of use-after-free type bugs. Um, it Like, reallocation is going to be fairly difficult in these one-shot command-line-style uh, exploit payloads. Yeah, so that's where it's going to pick up... Um, I guess the way I'd kind of think about it is RV fuzzing will be able to pick up, a, I guess, a wider breadth of like code, be able to get a lot more coverage over the code base than just going through a single function that you might be targeting, or, you know, more likely a set of functions that you'll try and target. But 
going through ARGV is going to give you a pretty good breadth um, of access, basically. Um, so, I don't know, it, it was interesting to kind of see them take this approach because, like I said, I don't think I've ever really need to do this. I don't think the thought has really come up for me. I can't think of too many times where I've actually had, like, Axo Binary that really executed a ton of uh, the functionality over ARGV. But in this case, like, it does make sense, and there are other programs that uh, do have, like, a binary to their library. And I, I like Baliko's message from chat. Even system curl plus friends isn't safe anymore. Yeah. Argument injection on curl is now, uh, you're not safe anymore. <laughs> um, I also, uh, IHBR said Live Overflow did a very nice series on RGB fuzzing pseudo to show how it could find the pseudo edit vulnerability. That's pretty cool. I'll have to check that out. Um, for whatever reason, I haven't really kept up with uh, Live Overflow's content as much um, like recently. I've just been busy with other stuff, I guess. But yeah, he does some really cool videos on the more like esoteric um, stuff like that. Like, yeah, he does some cool videos, so I'll have to check that out. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I think uh, I saw the series. I didn't realize. I guess it makes sense given what the uh, was that Baron pseudo or whatever that bug was called. Um, I saw that he was going for that. I guess it makes sense because that was through a command line thing. Um, I just didn't realize that that's kind of what he was doing with that video. But yeah, or with the, that series, sorry. Yeah. All right. Um, up next, we have a follow-up to the Rust-Proofing Linux post series. Uh, we covered part one and two last week. Um, the day of the, like, when we were covering the episode, part three came out. Uh, and then the final part on shared memory came out after that. So, you know, we figured we'd uh, we'd do some quick coverage of the follow-up posts because um, we we thought the first two were kind of interesting with the concepts they were exploring. Um, Z, I'll let you get into this one. Yeah, and again, kind of the whole series was taking about or taking a look at uh, porting over old C code from the Linux kernel into Rust and vulnerabilities that could still exist through there. I did find these last two posts to be, I guess, a little bit more disappointing, um, mostly because they show how effective Rust is at preventing some of these vulnerabilities, as it tends to be the case they, like, uh, the third post here is integer overflows, where, you know, it's inserting the runtime checks. Effectively, it's actually pretty hard to write kind of normal-ish looking Rust code that is actually going to be vulnerable, um, because even when, you know, maybe does overflow, the array checks will pick it up, for example. Uh, uh, where's the first post here? Uh, there we go. First post, or sorry, fourth post, I guess, technically. Um, I have these kind of in weird order. Um, on this on the second post, they end up looking at shared memory. Uh, they use kind of a double fetch as like their baseline vulnerability, which general practice for a lot of things like ioctals, where they use an ioctal here in this case, is going to be to copy from user and then parse. Um, that way you just don't do the double fetching at all. Uh, but if you were to go and set up the shared memory, like it, it is an option. They admit that this is a bit contrived. Usually if you're going to see the shared memory, it's going to be later on, but you may still see shared memory because it is a more effective way of sharing data without going through the whole copy process. Uh, so it can happen. Uh, but they end up showing the code here with the Volnioctal doing a double fetch vulnerability. So it, reads the shared buffer, index zero, and just checks the size. If the size is okay, it does the copy. 
Um, but of course, the size can, uh, because this is a shared buffer, the size can be swapped out from underneath it. Um, after or between these checks, you basically have a little race window where you can change the value, and it does a larger mem copy than it should. When it comes to porting that or porting that over to Rust, uh, the code I like they show how you could do the same thing in the code. So ideally, you would probably want to use like the uh, page object or like using kind of the layers of abstraction it already provides. So it provides something that kind of gives you the page concept. Um, you have to do one safe because you're dealing with pointers, all that. Well, I guess you go to raw pointers in another example, but um, you'll notice it kind of just does like the unsafe read if size less than unsafe read size again. It really makes it a lot more obvious that something's going wrong here. Take a look at that C code. You know, it's just if buffer zero less than size, and then it uses the value immediately. Kind of easy to overlook the fact there is a little race window there where that value can change. Whereas in Rust, it's kind of obvious, like, you wouldn't write this code. I can't imagine many people would write this out, grabbing the size variable, and then not use it after checking it. Like, it's very obviously not, um, not how you would naturally write this code. They do make it a little bit more similar when they look at just using raw pointers instead of going through the whole page system. Um, and it definitely blends in a little bit more. You'll notice how it just takes the unsafe there and grabs it a little bit later. Uh, the interesting problem here is that the Rust compiler will notice, hey, you're reading the same thing twice back to back here. It'll implicitly just create the variable and not even do the double read on it. Um, you have to mark it specifically as volatile, so you have to jump through these hoops to make it go, or to make it do something insecure. Uh, so yeah, on a whole, like in terms of the Vaughn research aspect, kind of disappointed here, but also kind of need to see what Rust is doing and how how it takes some of these code patterns that might normally be vulnerable and makes them feel quite a bit more obvious or just catches them, uh, as was the case with the uh, end overflow stuff. Yeah, the the lack of convenience with accessing direct memory is what like really stands in the way here of being able to port these bugs over into Rust um, without noticing it. But yeah, um, another thing I want to mention is that shared memory, um, part of why I guess these look a bit more obvious too, is the way shared memory is being used here. Like, obviously it's a very contrived example, um, but it, it's happening in like IOCTAL and it's, you know, getting it and using it right away. Um, typically when you do see shared memory, which isn't very common for what it's worth, um, it'll be like a, a good bit more, there'll be a lot more complexity around it. Um, typically, the only place you'll really sh see shared memory from a device driver is when you're trying to talk to a real like hardware device. Um, so you see it in like GPUs and stuff like that, uh, or maybe like hardware acceleration or whatever, but like you don't, like a lot of drivers don't expose that. Um, so, you know, maybe in those more complicated situations, uh, it's more viable for these types of bugs to spring up. But yeah, in, in a case like this, where it is doing like just the one thing, like uh, it would be pretty impossible to port over, but there might be some cases where it could happen. Um, that said, the types of drivers that would be using shared memory are probably like the last ones that would be getting ported into Rust anyway, um, because they're the ones that would be the most uh, like doing the most hardware abstraction uh, 
you know, a lot of low level communication stuff. So, um, yeah. So there's some, there's some like things to keep in mind there, but overall it's a pretty cool series of posts. Uh, you know, it's talking about something we like to talk about a lot with rust and memory safety. Uh, but yeah, with, with shared memory and in this kind of situation, it's just rust kind of shows how it can provide some, uh, you know, in de- like security in depth with just how difficult they make it to do that direct memory read uh, in a way that's dangerous. Yeah, and I really appreciate the fact that they have laid these things out just through the series of posts, just taking a look at it again. It's good information to have, um, to be able to reference to see, you know, how it's all laying out. Yeah, in this case, oh no, with the first couple posts, I was a little bit excited that they might be showing more about how Rust can go wrong, but, you know, these last two are really very much about how Rust is a better option, and it is, uh, for a lot of these use cases. Like, I'm not going to say let's all rewrite the kernel in Rust right now, like everything, but (laughs) it has security benefits. Um, I think that's reason. I think it's reasonable to say that that is undeniable. Yeah. So Synactive uh, last week put out a pretty complicated exploit chain. Uh, Well, it's a relatively simple bug, but they rolled their own custom TCP stack in the exploit, which is pretty insane. Um, I believe this is coming out of Pwn to Own. Uh, This was a bug that targeted Western Digital, uh, my cloud home NAS, which was one of the targets in uh, Pwn to Own Austin. So that's kind of where it uh, came out of. Um, But yeah, I'll let Z get into the the technical details of this one. Yeah, and this one... um... Yeah, like you said, there was a little bit of complexity around the TCP stack aspect. Um, but on a whole, like the bug itself wasn't that difficult. Actually, I'll see if I can bring up the specific vulnerable code here. The core vulnerability... Um, uh, so the way this generally works and the way uh, the NAS is working here is it has a... It runs NetaTalk... Uh, open source implement implementation of the Apple filing protocol. Uh, as you might guess, it's used to share files. Makes sense for a NAS. Um, and the way that works is it uses the data stream interface protocol, so DSI. Um, and I'll be making reference here to this DSI structure. Uh, effectively, DSI structure is kind of the whole management thing. Uh, uh, for any connection, DSI structure contains... Um, uh, all of the buffers, receive buffer, command buffer, well, command buffer is the receive buffer, uh, reply buffer is actually one of the important things it has here. Uh, data is used for reply. Um, one of the other things that it contains is a set of pointers that are used for the read ahead buffer. So it needs to peek if there's any data uh, kind of available, but doesn't want to officially write it. It's going to peek on it, and it's going to use these these buffers for it which tracks about the buffer and that has like start end of current position versus like the actual end. Um, kind of keeping track of as it reads into there, keeping track of where it is, multiple pointers. Um, and then coming in, uh, you've got the DSI blocks. That's basically what like all the packs are coming in, issuing different commands, having a request ID, and they'll specify like the actual length, which is then followed up with payload of the length size. So the vulnerability, now that I've gone through all of that, uh, when it gets a, so, you know, it's just going to loop forever reading commands in, um, and it's going to switch based off of those commands. Uh, in the default case, it does this write init and then flush, which seems to be the case where it's just trying to flush, so 
right init is taking all that data in the read ahead buffer. It's just going to take that and write that into the DSI data, uh, passes in the buffer length, and then flushes it all out. So it's basically just taking the data, getting rid of it at this point. Well, sending it out, but getting rid of it uh, for our purposes. The problem is the DSI write init function, it takes in this nice buff len. So it should be doing bounce checking, right? Well, no, uh, it takes it in and it just doesn't use it. So you have a potential issue here. Um, it will do the mem move. Uh, so data size is uh, attacker control. This is all coming off the network. Um, it'll, you know, it'll only copy as much as the as much information is basically available in that read ahead buffer. Uh, also taking a min with that. Uh, with uh, data size, but um, effectively you have a potential overflow here because it's just not doing the actual bounce, bounce check to make sure buff is the right size. Um, it'll make sure it doesn't overread the uh, uh, the read ahead buffer, but it's not checking the actual buff. And normally this isn't a huge issue because the read ahead buffer is only going to read about eight kilobytes at a time, whereas this data buffer is sixty four kilobytes or kilobytes. Uh, so you can really exploit this in a lot of cases, and that's where their custom TCP stack comes in, where some of the complexity of this exploit comes in. Uh, because what they've taken is you have this, but you can't get enough data into that read-ahead buffer under normal circumstances. But they did find an exception, and that exception was during periods of network congestion, specifically if it gets blocked on a write. It's going to uh, jump into the DSI peak function, and it's going to read more data if there is more data available on the network buffer. It's just going to go ahead and keep reading more in, hoping that if it clears that buffer, uh, it'll be able to write again. And just so, you know, it's doing something while it's blocked. So they have to trick the network stack into thinking, hey, you can't write anymore to this socket. We're not accepting any more, any more packets from you. Uh, they have to trick it into that state. Uh, once they're able to do that, then they're able to take it, uh, get into the DSI peak, and have it read even more than the normal 8 kilobyte amount into that buffer, which then means when it lands in the write init, it will overflow. Uh, and just to be clear, the overflow here uh, will end up corrupting basically all of this data um, after the... Uh, because uh, it's writing into DSI data, so it basically has the potential to corrupt the tail end of this, plus whatever's adjacent. Yeah, that's kind of uh, an important aspect, is that that data buffer isn't, like, out of band. It's in line in the DSI, uh, like, packet or whatever. Yeah. So I mean, any if... of those fields, which there are a lot of sensitive fields, <laughs> like buffer and start and stuff like that, there are, like, fair game for attacking. Yeah, it makes it convenient for this attack, because they don't have to do that, like... Uh, keep grooming to try and end off with the right object nearby. They have some very juicy targets right nearby. Uh, so yeah, they're able to overflow that by tricking it into base. Uh, so what they end up doing to get it into this network state is they will turn around and uh, or uh, they use Scappy to basically craft the custom packets to say, like, hey, the TCP window, you know, now this is zero. And then they tell their machine to stop, like, acting for new packets. Uh, they do that. They send a bunch of logout requests because that's, you know, not authenticated or anything. 
Um, they send a bunch of those, and it effectively just leaves them in the case where it falls into that DSIP route. They enter in there, getting a lot more data into that buffer, send a unknown command, and it goes and overflows DSI. So they can now corrupt that with pretty much as much data as they want. Uh, it is a very nicely controlled thing, data they can they control, plus they overflow just as much as they want to overflow. Uh, so when it comes to the actual exploitation, uh, one of the first things they take advantage of was the uh, for an info leak, because there was ASLR on here. Uh, they simply take advantage of the uh, fact that there's kind of a replay cache, so if you send the same command twice, uh, rather than processing the same thing twice, uh, it'll just send back like the old or already known information for it. And in doing so, it doesn't uh, overwrite the data length. So when they use their corruption, they corrupt the data length value. And then when they end up going to the replay path, it doesn't reset that value to what the proper size is. So when it replays it, it'll send back more information than they want. Effectively, you can think of it as just corrupting a size to give it a larger value. Um, and then reading out more data. So they're able to read a bunch of data off the heap. Specifically, they find these uh, hash uh, hash T objects sitting on the heap. Most of the time, it was within access. If they gave it, like, if they requested leak be, like, two megabytes. Most of the time, this will be on the heap. They could read kind of those pointers. Those pointers happen to be valuable to give them, like, the function pointers. They can uh, uh, get the slide or get, like, the offset of the main binary. So their info leak was effectively just corrupting a size so they get a larger reply than expected. Uh, for their write primitive, this is where having that nice DSI object and having everything nearby, uh, they were able to just, you know, target these pointers at the end of it saying, you know, because that is user data that is being written into the uh, read-ahead buffer, it's coming from the user, they have complete control. And now after one corruption run, uh, they're able to point that anywhere in memory they want. So once they know how much is being read, uh, once they're able to corrupt that, so they or not how sorry, um, using the leak, they know where like where everything is in memory, or at least the offset for what they care about. Now they can corrupt it second time and go for these pointers, overwriting them with a known address. Uh, so that gives them like just their right whatever where uh, or their arbitrary right. Lastly, for command execution, fairly straightforward. On the commands, when they would come in, it would just uh, use a table, actually look up the entry in a table. Uh, so they can enter their own function call or their own function pointer, sorry, into that table. And from that table, uh, what they were able to do is there was this uh, AFP run command, which um, you know is an existing function in the application. And it would run shell commands, and you could even have tell it to run the command as root. So very nice, you know, win function for that. So they would overwrite one of the command entries uh, with the pointer to AFP run and have it execute a root command for them, giving them a shell command. Or well, they would overwrite, so it would give them a shell command. Uh, I think they, I think they just did a uh, bind shell with that. Okay, I'm not seeing it here, so maybe they, maybe I'm mistaken there, but 
Oh yeah, the neck cap bind shell there. You kind of see it at the end there. Uh, so effectively, uh, they were able to eventually just get that, uh, get code execution. Ultimately, the nice thing about this one, there was no ROP in here. There was no like CFI violations. This would work if there was like control flow integrity enabled. Like this was purely a data attack. Um, yeah, I mean, on the whole, nice exploit. A little bit of a pain to get through on the complexity of actually reaching that initial vulnerability. Uh, but after that, it felt like a lot of it was pretty straightforward. The corrupted size for an info leak, uh, targeting a uh, basically jump table style setup uh, to get their code execution, and having the nice easy pointers in reach uh, for their right what where. Um, I do just want to comment quickly on your CFI comment. I think it kind of depends. Um, if you have the finer grained CFI, I think it would kill that attack strategy. Uh, I think you could still probably find a way to like make it useful. Like arbitrary write is like you know your end one of your end game primitives. It's it's kind of game over at that point anyway. I mean, the um, only but I think CFI could block like their their code exec trick. The only play well, because even fine grained CFI usually that's just looking for, um. Okay, yeah, actually, I guess I can see some fine-grained CFI that would, um, now that I'm thinking about it a bit more. Fair shout. I'll, I'll walk that back. Uh, but it is a largely data-oriented attack. They are using an existing function, so anything that still lets you call arbitrary functions, but yeah, fine-grained CFI can still cut into that if it's targeting the function type. However, on that note, actually, as I'm talking through it a bit, Lot the fine-grained CFI is looking at the type of the function rather than the specific address that it's okay to jump to. Uh, so if it's doing that, I'm going to imagine, I do not know for sure, that a lot of these, the command handlers, and I believe the uh, this run command is like a normal handler that could, uh, you know what, I might be wrong about that too. Um, it might be a normal command handler elsewhere, perhaps. It, it seemed like it was, but I'm not entirely confident on that. Uh, it kind of depends. Like uh, certain CFIs, it 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 depends on how it's configured uh, and what CFI is in play. Um, so yeah, it's just it's yeah, something that's I'll... tricky to say uh, without like putting it to the test. But well, my thought uh, was even on a lot of fine grained, if it's going just on the type and like the uh, signature of the function call, it would still match because it still looks like all the other function calls for these handlers. But it depends on that. So yeah, there is some complexity there. I'll walk it back a bit, but. Ultimately, it is largely data-oriented attack, uh, which is just fun to see. Like, on a whole, I like seeing this over just, you know, we did a ROP chain. Yeah. Uh, there was a uh, question from chat about, uh, is CFI and CFG the same? Uh, CFG is basically just, like, Microsoft's terminology for CFI, because uh, Microsoft just likes to rename everything for no reason. Um, it's effectively the, the same thing. Um but CFI can come in like different forms. Uh, so you can have like your Clang based CFI, which is software. It has like the instrumentation um, put in by the compiler. Um, but then you have something like Intel CET, which is a little bit stronger. Um, I think there is support for it in Windows, but it's not like, uh, I don't think a lot of Intel CPUs support it yet. Um, I think it's only like CPUs within the last year, maybe two that have uh, CET support because it's hardware. So, yeah, I mean, CFG and CFI are basically the same thing, but um, there CFG. are different implementations and how it works. 
Yeah, it basically says CFG is just the Windows-specific implementation of, yeah. like, their CFI. Uh, since you're mentioning, like, the CET stuff, I will say, like, GCC now builds by default with, like, that NBR instruction that's used for the, uh, for CFI on indirect jumps. Uh, so, like, it is being built in their default, even though uh, a, a lot, lot of, of systems CPUs don't support it. Sorry? Yeah. I was just going to say a lot of CPUs, it would be a knob, but on yeah. some of the newer ones, it would work. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's building with it, but yeah, most CPUs aren't supporting it, but it is getting built in there by default already. So that makes me think like we will see it as assuming it gets more adoption on CPUs. It is still pretty new. Yeah. Uh, the final thing I wanted to say on this topic is I found it kind of funny that um, they were able to get such a clean exploit, particularly because of the struct layout of DSI. Um, typically when you see these like auxiliary data buffers that user data is being put into, it's towards the end of the structure. Um, like they'll use the structure as a header and then what follows is, you know, the data container. Um, but having it in line like this and having sensitive pointers after it is just not a situation you see super often, but like in cases like this, where you do see it, it's very nice for exploitation. So, um, hey, so and yeah, I guess on that note, um, where this is like an intra-object uh, memory corruption. Um, you were kind of talking about mitigations earlier, but even like um, uh, memory tagging wouldn't catch this kind of corruption um, because it is within the same object. Uh, it's going to have the same tag. Yeah, um, I will say that that is the reply buffer that's in line, not the uh, user data buffer. Uh, the actual payload does come. Um, uh, that's part of the that that's out of band. Um, uh, yeah, sorry, that's that's fair. Yeah, but they were uh, but able still. to get control of that reply or of content in the reply buffer. Yeah, still though, generally those auxiliary buffers are towards the end. Um, but yeah, it's just it's it's kind of cool how that worked out for them here. Yeah, definitely worked out nice for them. All right, so uh, we'll get into our last topic here, which is part three of the Masticore exploit chain for PS2 emulation uh, on PS4 and PS5. Last week, we covered part two, which was a pretty straightforward overflow vulnerability in Okage Shadow King. Um, this final post is an out-of-bounds write in the PS2 emulator, which can be used to escape it and get full user land code execution, um, which was talked about a bit in CTERT's original post, um, although this one goes a little bit more into the uh, like detail on exploiting it, especially on the code exec uh, side of things. So... You know, as you'd expect, where there's emulation in involved here, uh, they have callbacks for doing memory reads and writes. And things like memory mapped I.O. have to be emulated as well. Um, the registers that are relevant here for this bug were the CDVD uh, S commands, um, particularly the SCMD send and SCMD status registers. So for those of you not familiar with like how MMIO works, basically um, inside of the address space, you map, you have a device that maps some address as a register. Um, so when the CPU goes to write there, instead of doing like your typical write to RAM or whatever, the device will intercept it and, you know, do whatever it wants to do. Um, it's it's pretty critical to like lower level um, systems. Um, so of course, when you're doing something like an emulator, it's it's a pretty critical part of it. So and it's also easy to get wrong. And it's a great attack surface to look for problems. So yeah, the trouble here is uh, when writing to the uh, status register, the fake DVD device will update like this global status buffer with the written value, uh, and it'll track the current position with this G status index 
uh, like counter, um, which when the CMD status register is written to, um, you can basically use that to get a relative one byte write to escape the emulator because they just never check the status index. So you can just keep incrementing it um, by sending lots of commands. Um, because yeah, there's only room for 16 entries in that buffer, and there's there's no bounds checking. Um, so yeah, that relatively weaker primitive um, is used to smash the end status index global, um, which that's when the end CMD status register comes into play. Um, that gives them the relative you know one byte write, uh, which is enough to escape the emulator. Like that's a fairly powerful primitive, even though even though it's only one byte, because they can just keep exploiting that over and over again. Um, now. Because you're escaping the emulator, mitigations are a factor, unlike the last post. Um, so, you know, like no execute, ASLR, et cetera, are in play. On PS5, execute only memory would be in play. Um, the way they bypassed ASLR was quite neat um, because they basically did a partial overwrite of the function pointer for this uh, O register read handlers. Uh, and they overwrote the last byte to give themselves a return gadget, which might not sound super useful, um, but it turns out that you know, where this function pointer is followed, that the EAX register, which is used for return values in x86, um, can, it contains a pointer which can be used for defeating ASLR. Um, from there, you know, they figure out the memory layout uh, and it's fairly standard drop, um, which they also use to leak the stack pointer for restoring stuff and whatnot later on. Um, because you can exploit this on PS4, execute-only memory isn't uh, super annoying. You can kind of get your gadgets uh, through PS4 and then it over to PS5 after the fact. Um, if this didn't impact PS4, this would, would have been a lot more annoying to take advantage of because execute-only memory would have been uh, would have been a problem here. So, kind of a benefit of being able to target both systems here. Um, there was some additional like complications when it came to exploiting this because you have to do like uh, the save game signing. Um, so. There, there's a little bit involved there, but it's not really super relevant to the exploit, but that is towards the top if you're interested. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a pretty cool emulator escape. It's not too surprising that it was in the MMIO uh, functionality for like the DVD stuff. Um, like I said, like MMIO is easy to get wrong. Um, and where it's, you know, PS2 stuff, it's going to be older code. Uh, you can kind of expect to find those lower hanging fruit type issues. So yeah, uh, cool exploit chain. Uh, very useful as well for the same reasons I mentioned last week. Uh, you know, it's kind of, you can use this on, on any firmware basically. So yeah, uh, cool vulnerability, cool exploit chain. There's a lot of inf like background information here, uh, and he goes pretty in depth on the ROP side of things. Um, I'm mostly just going to skip over that because we usually don't cover like the, the ROP stuff and there's nothing too insane going on there. But as always, you know, link will be in the show notes if you're interested in the specific gadgets and, and whatnot that were used. Um, but yeah, so that's the final part of, I believe it's the final part of the Masticore um, posts. So yeah, um, really good series overall. I, I would recommend checking it out for, even if you're not interested in console stuff, um, there is some cool stuff there where there's an emulator involved and everything. Yeah, kind of a cool chain and um, just well done set of posts too. For sure. All right. So that's all the topics that we have for this week. So Z, unless you have any last minute thoughts, we'll wrap it up. Yeah, no shout outs. All right. So thank you everyone who tuned in. If you want to catch past episodes, you can find them on Twitch and all of them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more uh, on Anchor. If you want to join our Discord and follow us on Twitter, links for those are down below or in the chat as well. 
And with that said, we'll see you next week.